Hello, everyone. Welcome to Big Nerdy Questions, or welcome back. I'm Josh, and uh, sometimes on Big Nerdy Questions, we are going strictly for laughs. Who can forget the time that Barney the dinosaur was given the power of Mjolnir? Looking at you, JP. Fortunately, but we JP, can't because you keep bringing it back up. Well, I bring it up because I love the fact that Barney is worthy. Although, to be fair, I recently gave the power to Ralph Wiggum as well, so we're almost even. But sometimes on Big Nerdy Questions, we actually want to step back a little bit and and, and tickle your brain a little bit, make you think. And uh, I know that sounded dirty, but it isn't. Uh, we want to be more thought-provoking. And being nerdy is about listening and understanding. That's part of it. And so that's what we're doing here tonight because a lot of us have historical training or uh, some interesting areas in this. So tonight, we're going to look at how nerdy franchises have interacted with the civil rights uh, movements and i say civil rights it could be race or gender or any other form of civil rights so instead of having one central discussion with all of us coming together because this is so specific to different kinds of things we're going to actually go in turns and each of us on the panel today are going to be talking about something a little different kind of like a panel if you're going to a conference but a lot more fun uh so joining me on the panel in the order of appearance like an old school credits uh callie thank you for joining us hello and callie if you'll introduce the guest that you have brought on the show to talk to sure um so i would like to introduce to you uh my wife's college roommate's husband this is Jeremy Whitley is with us. He is the creator of uh, the hit comic series Princeless and Raven Pirate Princess. Um, he is also a Marvel uh, writer uh, behind, been writing comics for the Unstoppable Wasp. Um, he did a, a story with Misty Knight and Iron Fist for Secret Love. Um, he did Civil uh, a couple books in Civil War. What's nice. he should he's done some. Um, My Little Pony work. Um, is it? Is it? What's the vampire one you're working on now, Jeremy? Vampirella. Yeah, uh, working on Vampirella. Just all kinds of great comics, um, all over the gamut, and just really good Tar Heel writing. And Callie will be talking to Jeremy about civil rights representation in comic books today, I believe. That is correct. Awesome. And then the second segment of the show will be coming from JP. Welcome, JP. Yes, and if you ever want to brighten someone's day when you're waiting for your order at the restaurant, when they finally call your number, just yell bingo. (laughs) It's a reference. Uh, JP will be telling us about the sordid history of animation and how where we are today is a far cry from where animation was in earlier years. Uh, So he's our expert on animation, so that'll be a very interesting Our fourth panelist, you know him, you love him, and he's, of course, the Gungan Slayer. He is Matt. Welcome aboard, Matt. Sharpening my Gungan knife right now. (laughs) And Matt is actually going to be taking on a Marvel issue as well. You'll be talking about the X-Men, isn't that right? That's right. And I'm only going to be discussing the X-Men because there are going to be a lot of parallels throughout different comics. But I really want to focus on how the X-Men comic series relates to the American civil rights movement and other civil rights movements throughout the world in the same eras. And then I am going to wrap it up with a discussion on how Star Trek, of course, has interacted with civil rights. uh, And we'll be ending the show on that note in the final frontier. Uh, So before we go any further, Matt, who is our sponsor for this week's episode? Well, true believers, today's episode is brought to you by Stan Lee. Stan Lee, he's Excelsior. Thank you, Stan Lee. Uh, but as you know by now, we have a, a real sponsor and a partner, uh, Fleetwit.com, and it is now time for the Fleetwit Question of the Week. In the Fleetwit Question of the Week, the host of the episode, in this case we're all hosts, but I'm going to do the question because, you know, I like an- asking trivia questions, is going to pose a trivia question to the rest of the panel. And the rest of the panel will then try to guess their answer or will say what they think the answer is. I will then reveal the answer, and then you will hear the dulcet tones of JP as he tells you how to go have fun on Fleetwit.com. So, here is our question of the week. In 1998, Star Trek Deep Space Nine aired an episode called Far Beyond the Stars, which is considered to be the most controversial episode 
in the history of the franchise, at least up until Discovery was released. Why was it so controversial upon airing? Was it A, it depicted a lynching uh, without cutting away? B, it depicted someone's buttocks on American television? C, it was the first time a transgender character was featured on the show? Or D, the N-word was said during the show uncensored? I will start with Mm. Callie. Oh, you picked my, like, dead spot of of Star Trek. I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm going to go process elimination, see what I can do. I don't think it was the lynching, because that screams roots. Mm. Mm? Are we going to... I'm just just making a, I'm making a, uh, I I agree with you sound. Okay. Um, Butts, I just don't see CBS or NBC putting butts. And then, you said this was in the 90s, right? 1998. Okay, so it was right. It was after Voyager started. Yeah, but this is a DS Nine episode, right? Um, and it aired. Would... It aired in syndication, but also on UPN. Oh, it was on UPN. I doubt they used the N word, so I'm going to go with C. First transgender character in Star Trek. Yeah. Yes. All right, Matt. What do you think the answer is? I I I haven't seen DS Nine very much. And I'm digging deep in my brain. And the name Dex is coming up, and I'm thinking it's a character that was transgender. So that's what I'm going with. Transgender character. Jeremy, would you like to take a guess at this answer? Ooh. Um, that's, I don't know, that's a tough one. It's, it's also been a long time since I've seen Deep Space Nine. Um, I am going to guess, given sort of the the honestly frank tone with which ds9 handles a lot of stuff that the other shows often don't um and the fact that they did a lot of like doing stuff in the hollow suite is like historical that uh it might be the the lynching all right the lynching uh colleen what was your guess uh i'm going with option c as well transgender character okay yeah makes sense and jp you're my other star trek guy on the panel I know DS9 is not in your wheelhouse, though, so what is your guess on this? Yeah, my my guess, I'm going to go with the transgender character as well. All right, so let me reveal the facts. First of all, Matt, Dax wasn't transgender, but uh, she was in the first same-sex kiss in Star Trek, which is not in this <clears throat> episode. Uh, so the reason is Dax is a symbiote species, where there's like a worm thing that lives inside the body, and there's also the actual body, which is the host. And they have co- they're co-dependent on each other, and each one is sentient. So Jadzia Dax, Jadzia is the human kind of human, and Dax is the worm, but they're together. Dax, in a previous life, was a male who was in love with a female, and that female comes to visit Jadzia, and they have the first on-screen same-sex kiss. So they had a mm. long explanation for why, but in Star Trek, at least, it was the first same-sex kiss on screen. Uh, the first true like same-sex kiss that was actually a, an actual relationship came in Discovery this past year. Um, but you are that's where Dax came from, so you were right about that. So very close. And Jeremy is right that they actually didn't flinch away from historical depictions. Uh, so, but let me go through the answers. First of all, it wasn't a butt. Uh, Star Trek did actually air a butt, but it was in Enterprise, and it was Jolene Blaylock's behind. It was censored in the American version, but shown in the European version and on the DVDs. Trying to make that money, Enterprise was when it was desperate to be renewed. But, so that was later. I don't think, to my knowledge, Star Trek has actually ever shown a full-scale lynching, although I could be wrong on that. Uh, listeners, if I'm wrong, let me know. Transgender the Forge was also in Roots. We should not yes, get confused. Exactly. Transgender character. There's actually a, a character very close to transgender, but not named as such in the Next Generation in the movie in the in the episode The Outcast, uh, which I'll be talking about a little bit later in this show. So the answer, amazingly, is D. It was an uncensored use of the N word in a Star Trek episode. In this episode, Captain Sisko actually wakes up, and he's actually a science fiction writer who's black in the 1940s. He works for a pulp magazine. Everyone else on the crew, even the aliens, are humans who he also works with in this New York office. He sees 
um, African-American kids and uh, teenagers being beaten on the streets. He sees violence. And eventually he's drawing Deep Space Nine as a comic, a pulp comic. And eventually he's called the N-word by some people that he encounters. And he goes crazy because he's torn between this reality and the reality of DS9. And the ending is left very open to interpretation. And in fact, some Star Trek viewers actually think that in canon, that episode establishes that all of Trek was actually in the mind of his character named Benny Russell. Uh, so it's a very, it's one of the more interesting and probably, it's probably Avery Brooks' best acting performance ever, not just in DS9. And he actually was considered for an Emmy nomination for that episode. He didn't get it, but he was in strong contention. Uh, so that is Far Beyond the Stars from 1998. And now you know the rest of the story. Uh, I so, can safely say I did not see that episode because I think I would have remembered that. Yeah, uh, so I I, stump, I stumped the whole panel, uh, but hopefully you won't get stumped if you try Fleetwit. JP, where can people learn some amazing facts like that and win some real money? Yes, if uh, none of your friends or family want to play Trivial Pursuit or Cranium when you're in the house, you might just be Fleetwit material. On Fleetwit, you can compete with other trivia enthusiasts in accuracy and speed-based races for a chance to win real prizes. With free races almost daily, Fleetwit is like a 24-7 game show at your fingertips, and it's playable on computers and mobile devices via Fleetwit.com. Apple users can also find it in the App Store. Josh? Thank you, JP. I certainly appreciate uh, you telling the people about that. any reactions to that? I, mean, I know that Matt was uh, kind of surprised. Or, are the rest of you surprised that Star Trek allowed the N-word to go through uncensored? Yes, incredibly. Yes, but less surprised when you said it was airing on UPN at the time. True. That, that is true. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, think my reasoning, I think my reasoning was right. My answer just was right. Yes, your reasoning was exactly right. But most of the Sweet episodes, they focused on like James Bond kind of things or baseball uh, but yeah, your reasoning was precisely correct. Just a little bit off on the answer. Uh, honestly though, if it would have been, but it probably would have had higher ratings. So <laughs> there's that <laughs> depending on the character. I don't think anyone wanted to see quirks ass. No, no. And Odo is-, is just, well, uh, technically you see Odo's everything because you see him as goo in a bucket, um, which sounds a lot worse than it is, but he's actually goo in a bucket. He's Avery Brooks would have been game for it, too. He probably would have. Uh, I've seen some interviews with Avery Brooks. He's a very interesting man. I don't want to yeah, say anything same, more. That's the same adjective I would have used. Interesting. Uh, maybe quixotic, maybe. Uh, eccentric, but interesting man. Uh, I don't think he's the kind of guy you have a beer with. I think he's the kind of guy you have a philosophical discussion with about drinking a Dom Perignon. Just- yeah, I saw an interview that... Uh, Shatner did of him at one point, which the two of them talking to each other is, that's interesting. Yes, it is. <laughs> and we'll actually get a little bit more into Avery Brooks uh, at the end of the episode, but I want to go ahead and segue uh, into our big nerdy recommendation. Jeremy, as our guest, uh, you have the honor of telling our listeners a recommendation. Of course, we're looking for any kind of nerdy work that deserves a little bit more attention than what it's gotten. So would you like to recommend something, sir? Yeah, so when you asked me about this uh, initially, I jokingly uh, mentioned a small indie movie called Black Panther that just came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> um, it really needs to get more press. It's it's just yeah. amazing. And uh, I will actually uh, say something related to that, though, because a lot of people obviously have seen Black Panther. It's number nine in the like domestic box office all the time now. Has it passed um, the Avengers yet down. for Marvel movies, or is it... Is it close? The Avengers is the only one left that it hasn't passed. And worldwide, it's hitting a billion this weekend, which there's only uh, six other Marvel movies that have done. Yeah. It it, it Um, broke a billion uh, overnight last night with the official opening in China. Wow. And that tells you, fans, we we released this episode. We're releasing this in the middle of April. We're talking in the middle of March, so that's why we're... uh, By the time you're listening to this, maybe it has passed the Avengers, and if so... Wakanda forever. Yeah. Um, so what I wanted to recommend is uh, with the relaunch of the Black Panther book leading up to uh, the movie, there, there was a uh, new series written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, and it's, it's very good. But what I would like to recommend is the uh, Black Panther World of Wakanda series, 
which is a, a mini series they did going along with the main book. Which, uh, if if you're interested more in things like the Dora Milaje or uh, you know several of the other characters from the the Black Panther universe, um, you know it goes more into them specifically into uh, a couple of the Dora Milaje who uh, you know have a, a relationship between the two of them. Um, you know, sort of run off and uh, do their own thing, find themselves conflicting with. Uh, a lot of Wakanda, so it's it's a real uh, interesting miniseries and ties into the um, the Black Panther series at large, um, but you know can easily be read by itself. Um, and if you like uh, if you like the movie, I would definitely recommend checking out that as well as you know obviously the Black Panther comics, which uh, they're more than they're more than happy to push out there. But World of Wakanda was a slightly smaller thing. That makes sense to me, and thank you for the recommendation. World of Wakanda sounds like a great comic, and everyone who's listening to this will probably enjoy it. So thank you, sir. And without any further ado, Callie, the floor is yours to talk to Jeremy about representation in modern comics. Um, so Jeremy, I'm going to spring a whole bunch of questions on you and quote you from the past, so don't be afraid. Um... But I guess I wanted to start off with just, I guess I, I want to give everybody a sense of what kind of work you do and and what your comics are like. Um, so back, I'm not sure which interview this was, but back in 2011, so like before, I guess assume, assuming when Ziri was very little, um, you said that when you married your wife, um, you had met some of her family and you realized that most of her um family members had not read a comic book except for your wife. Um, at the time, you said you could count on one hand um, how many black women you could find in a comic book at the moment, and um, it was even harder to find people or find women of color that had positive portrayals, um, even more so in fantasy books. And you wrote, you said that you wrote Prince List because you wanted your daughter to have a comic book um, she could love the same way that you loved um, when you were young. Um, since the time you said that on the time and over the time that you wrote Princeless, um, which is about a, an African-American princess who saves herself from a tower and goes on adventures, saving, um, her sisters who are other princesses who've been locked away by their fathers and waiting princes to save them. Um, how have you, have you felt like the industry has started to shift? Um, and, and do you think things are moving in the right direction? Um, yeah, I, I absolutely feel like there has been movement in the right direction. There, there have been a few shifts. Um, like any, you know, large uh, business full of, you know, millions of dollars to be made, it's a very slow-moving ship, um, and it, it is very slow to turn around. And uh, they're prone to a lot of, like, false starts where they'll try something, and if it's not, you know, immediately successful the way they want it to be, uh, it'll get shut down, and maybe they'll give it a chance again in a few years. Um, but there have been, you know, some some outstanding successes. Um, you know, Black Panther among them, but uh, in comics more specifically, um, there are things like, uh, you know, Ms. Marvel, um, Kamala Khan, who's a you know young Pakistani American character who you know is Muslim, uh, who did not exist at the time that you know I started writing comics, um, and is now. You know, among the sort of top characters at Marvel, as far as uh, you know, promotion and, and interest, and um, having just an amazing book. Um, and I think you know, you've seen some increase and in some more um, knowledge of some of the, the more diverse characters, with uh, you know them popping up in movies and TV shows, and uh, you know that's led to characters like Luke Cage, and uh, I guess to a lesser extent, Misty Knight. Um, and then, you know, the characters like the Runaways, who has a, has a very diverse cast, um, getting, you know, a little bit of a spotlight that they, uh, they were missing from at that point. But I, I think, you know, comics still has a long way to go. It's still overwhelmingly white, male, and straight. Um, but I think especially when it comes to, you know, creator-owned comics, we've seen a, a big uh, sea change in uh, what's available and, and who gets to make it. Okay. So you're saying you think the more the independent labels are the ones who are kind of leading that change? I think so, yeah. I think, you know, um, independent labels, uh, be they, you know, Image, who's, you know, the third largest comic book company uh, in the U.S., or, you know, smaller uh, labels like uh, Action Lab, which puts out Princeless, or um, Black Mask, or Vault, who are, you know, other comic book companies who are uh, sort of openly 
um, have an, an openly progressive agenda. Um, you know, they've done a lot to, uh, I think, bring in bring in you know creators from outside comics or you know creators who uh, don't exactly look or sound like uh, what the the general image of a, a comic book creator is. Okay. Um, so yeah, I I would agree with you at some extent. Like it's it's a little bit slow moving. The Marvel is you know just now getting to Miss Marvel being the big thing. I want to say like 2016 was the first time they had an African American female as like a a, a, a featured writer um, within Marvel. Um, and even as as recently as last year, uh, David Gabriel, who was I think head of PR marketing for Marvel, said that their their decrease in sales was due to readers not wanting any more diversity. Um, having written for Marvel and as an author, the way you try to convey those the diverse experiences that readers have, how do you feel that readers are truly responding for this push for more diversity? I think it's a, I think it's a tricky thing. Um, and, I, you know, David Gabriel's um, quote there is, is sort of been frequently taken out of context or are given different contexts than it has. Um, I think part of that is um, comics functions on a direct market model where individual single issues of comics are sold almost exclusively to uh, owner operators at comic book stores. So like there's no big chains. There's no, uh, there's very few, you know, stores or, you know, it used to be that drug stores carried comics, um, you know, somewhere where they would hit a sort of mass market. Um, And now, you know, they're almost entirely specialty stores. And I think, the makeup of the people who own those stores in a lot of cases reflects uh, what people think readers think about comics. Um, and, the, you know, unless people specifically go to a comic store and pre-order a comic, you know, two to three months before it comes out, um, that ordering is left entirely up to the people who own the stores, uh, a lot of whom are male, white, and in a lot of cases fairly conservative. Um and, you know, David there is talking about, you know, sort of what he'd heard from retailers, which, uh, I don't know, retailers are an interesting and difficult way to, to gauge, you know, what an actual mass audience is, is thinking about a thing. But in a lot of cases, with single issues, it's the only way they have, um, you know, until it gets to a bookstore, until, you know, there are collections available that somebody can buy on Amazon. They don't know what's successful anywhere other than a comic shop. So like, it's a really, it's a really tough like thing for them as a giant corporation to like know when something is successful if you know those small owner operator retailers don't buy stuff. Um, you know, which is a problem I've had with with my own comics is like, you know, Princeless and uh, for that matter, you know, Unstoppable Wasp, which I wrote for Marvel, didn't sell great in single issues um, because you know a lot of retailers didn't order them. Uh, in the case of Unstoppable Wasp, like issue one was massively underordered and then sold out. And then at the point that it had sold out, you know, Marvel only printed enough for demand, so it was another three months before anybody could get any. So like people that were looking for it couldn't even even get the comic. Um, so like so much depends on them ordering stuff. But then in the case of Princeless, you know, thankfully Action Lab stuck in there long enough for us to get you know collections out, books with you know, all the issues collected, and it is way outsold the number of, you know, single issues we sell in collections. Yeah, so you brought up an interesting point, basically saying, you know, these these shop owners are really controlling what's getting to the owner's hands, and really, like you said, a lot of white conservative males have a large say in what actually ends up on shelves. My question for you is, as a white male, how do you make sure your inclusivity stays true to the characters that you're portraying? How do you make sure the people you want to see represented are actually mirroring the people that are in real life? Um, I think the largest way I do that is, um, you know, one, I, I try to base characters off of, to some extent, people that I know, people who are, are friends of mine in some respects, you know. Uh, I try to bounce things off people as I'm writing them. But I think the biggest thing is um, that I, I have what's generally like in literature, 
like in literary offices known as uh, um, readers, specifically like uh, sensitivity readers who, you know, people who are from that audience or are, uh, you know, the, the types of people that I'm trying to portray um, who know what to look for better than I do as far as, you know, when something is, is done incorrectly, um, you know, things that are tropes that maybe I'm not necessarily aware of because I'm not in the audience that's having that sort of trope thrown in their face all the time. Um, I, I feel like I have a pretty good idea of a lot of things, but I think that's where a lot of uh, male and white writers get in trouble is feeling like they know uh, what other people feel. And, you know, as much as sometimes you have that feeling and you, you have to trust yourself as a writer, I think, you know, having the, the common sense and uh, care to take it to other people and um, not be afraid that they might not like your work um, in order to make something better uh, is, is key. Because, um, you know, I, I've taken, you know, I, I write um, even The Pirate Princess, the spinoff to Princeless, which is, you know, it has a, a diverse crew of, you know, not only racially diverse, but uh, diverse from a point of view of, you know, sexuality um, and gender between the characters. Um, it's very important to me to like take that to a a group of people who have more experience with those issues than I do, and have them look at that and tell me where I'm screwing up. Because I think you know getting it to those people is important. The second important part about that, which I feel like a lot of writers miss, is actually listening to what people say to you. Um, because a lot of people will bounce it off people and then go. When they come back with an issue, say, "Oh, well, you know, that's I. I think that's fine," um, and that's the easiest way I think people get in trouble is is not listening to the feedback that they do get or writing it off as too sensitive or too particular. Okay. Um, what What would you say then? You You feel like is still missing from modern comics if you if you wanted to include some other culture or human experience that you don't think um, has been seen yet, what would you choose to write about? Um, I think I think that the biggest gap, I, well, I think there are two pretty big gaps in between um, people that are, are often represented and uh, talked about in comics and people who are working behind the scenes on comics. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, Black women has been a very large gap for uh, not just Marvel, but DC um, and, you know, comics at large. Um, in a lot of cases, um, you know, black women who have been very successful in comics have come in through, you know, either um, making web comics or in the case of like Spike Trotman creating their own company and doing it from the ground up, um, you know, with the kind of stuff they want to write and they want to see. Um and the other thing I think is we're missing a lot of uh, any sort of meaningful voice from Native people, uh, specifically, you know, in, in this case, Native Americans, because they are so frequently depicted in comics, you know, um, either as superheroes or as, as somehow magical characters. Um, but there's so few, like, Native voices in comics that, uh, you know, are, are actually seen or heard from. Um, I think you know that's a, that's or those are both gaps that need to be closed. Nice. Okay. Um, I know we we talk a lot about diversity in the comic itself, but what about the people behind the scenes? Do you see um, writers and illustrators? Um, and would you are they called letterers? People who do the lettering. What are they called? Mm-hmm. Um, do you see? the diversity in the people creating the comic, not just the result um, that's being published? Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's sort of two questions there. And, and one is that, like, are there, are there diverse people doing these jobs in comics? And, like, there absolutely are. Um, the question is whether those are the people who are uh, being picked up and promoted by the big companies and... Um, looked at and paid attention to um, or whether those are the people who are, you know, literally self-publishing, doing it by you know, pulling themselves up and doing their own thing. Um, right. yeah. 
which like there are a ton of people that do that. Um, you know, I, I go to SPX, the Small Press Expo in Bethesda, Maryland, every year, and it's an incredibly diverse crowd. Um, but if you look at the number of people that are writing or illustrating for uh, Marvel or DC, uh, it's it's much less diverse. Um, you're much more likely to see a diversity in like the country that illustrators currently live in um, than like you know. And like, there's more. There's more. I feel like illustrators that currently live in Italy on Marvel books than there are like women of color in America working on Marvel books. Being inclusive, I feel like, is a passion of yours. Both of us are in interracial um, relationships, and we are constantly, we constantly see the world, uh, uh, not necessarily differently than other people, but we're constantly aware of racism or sexism or. Um, or homophobia, or, or whatever, what would you say, through your experience um, in writing comics, whether at like a convention or in Twitter, what would you say was something shared with you from a reader that made you feel like you were doing the good, doing the good work, you're, you're, you're keeping up the good fight? Um, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter's an incredibly mixed bag. Um, as it is with everything. I agree with um, that completely as the manager of our Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, Twitter's nice because I, I get messages occasionally from people who, you know, uh, somebody has gotten Princeless as, or, or Wasp now, as, you know, their daughter's first comic, and they're super excited about it. This is, you know, now they're a big fan of this comic or comics in general, um, and that's fantastic. Uh, Twitter also has you know, just a whole horde of trolls that like to show up anytime anything even moderately progressive comes out. Um, conventions, on the other hand, are are much more overwhelmingly positive for me, um, as I have had a number of um, moms at conventions, especially you know um, moms of color who have, have come up. And um, I remember one in particular in South Carolina. Um, I had a I had a mom uh, hug me and uh, cry on me because she was she was so excited that like her daughter had this book that like she didn't have as a kid that she would have liked to have, have had um, herself. Like you know, uh, her daughter was you know sharing princess with with all of her uh, friends in middle school and passing it around, and they were all really excited about it. Um, and she she couldn't recall having had any sort of experience like that where she you know had seen herself in, you know, literature, much less comics, um, you know, as a, as a heroic character. That's cool. Um, yeah. Speaking of, of books or having, having books to read that reflect you as a kid, um, I know that you have put your daughters through a strenuous comic curriculum um, <laughs> and wanted to know what comics did you have on your must-read kit or must-read must read list for your kids? Um, so my uh, Zuri's favorite book right now uh, more so than anything I've written is uh, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl um, which I recommend to everybody with kids um, it is the most amazingly positive book in which you know the, the character more often than not um, saves the day and, and uh, stops you know whatever bad guys are involved using something other than violence, using her brain, using um, her environment, using, you know, something she knows or, or appealing to them in some sort of uh, emotional or intelligent way. Um, but, you know, can also punch dudes when that needs to happen. Uh, because, you know, it's the superhero world, and sometimes that needs to happen. Um, I, I really recommend my... My daughter loves Raina um, Talgemeyer's books, um, there's uh, Smile and Sisters and Drama, all of which are out from Scholastic, and all of which are aimed to sort of that younger audience. And um, they're, I, I, don't, I don't even know what it is she loves so much about them, but they're you know, written from that point of view of a, a young kid in the case of Smile, which she read several times um, about, like, dental surgery. It's about, like, uh, you know, this kid who's going through this series of sort of dental mishaps and, you know, dealing with having uh, lost teeth, you know, uh, when she 
tripped at one point and all these various things she has to go through to get her her teeth fixed all while sort of you know being in you know elementary and middle school um and you know sisters which was the sequel to that which is all about uh having a younger sister which i, I feel like a lot of people can relate to um so may i ask a question real quick mm-hmm. uh, Callie? Sure. uh so Obviously, the big news, I mean, Black Panther is huge in the comic world right now, but also the big news right now in culture is the Me Too movement. Uh, and I'm wondering if that has had or you think will have an effect on comic production. Uh, and there's so many ways that people look at gender discrimination in comics. Like, for example, the infamous tummy windows or boob windows of women characters or women superheroes are only there for you know titillation sometimes or they're the damsel in distress and obviously we've come a long way in a lot of the comics that you've mentioned but there's still a long way to go in some of the more you know big scale franchises and i'm wondering if this is the kind of cultural movement that could actually make that a thing of the past you know it it has definitely had an effect i mean very specifically on um you know some editorial issues and that um you know, there there was sort of a, a major editor at DC who uh, had been had had a number of issues with uh, harassing, sexually harassing women in comics, and um, was sort of un- somehow had managed to stay sort of an open secret in comics. And um, you know, early on, I think in the the, uh, the Me Too movement, um, a number of, of comics journalists, including you know, my friend Jay Editon. Um, got to working with you know people at BuzzFeed to put together an article that sort of compiled all of this information and got it out to a larger audience and you know eventually resulted in you know the firing of, of this editor who had you know been over a large office in DC and, and made it impossible for uh, you know female writers and illustrators to work on uh, several of the characters including you know Superman and Wonder Woman at that point um, so that that's been sort of like a big obvious change mm-hmm. from the outside. Um, as far as you know, changing the way that women are portrayed in comics, I think that's something that has been slowly rolling in the right direction over the last yeah. few years. Obviously, you know, um, Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel are, are big examples of that. I think we've seen some better Wonder Woman representation um, with her, you know, getting more of a, a high profile thanks to that movie and everything. Um, I think there's still a long way to go, and I think to some extent, it's always, I mean, just like in movies and TV, there's always going to be some component of this stuff that's that's there merely for, you know, for titillation. Um, but I think the, the biggest goal, especially in comics, has been trying to advance these, these major franchises that are, are world and kid-facing. Um, for you know these two big companies, Marvel and DC, to uh, to to really shape up and uh, give a sort of representation that you know everybody can at least be comfortable you know looking at and, and ending you know a kid who might be interested in that character as composed as compared to like some of the ways that those characters have been portrayed in the past. Absolutely, and I should note that in Black Panther. Not only are you know African American and African representation so wonderful, but the women in Black Panther are so strong and such amazing characters, and not just they're not tropes, they're not walking tropes. They are strong women just because they're strong, you know, and and that's a really good thing to see and the, on the screen, but it's a reflection of of comic book uh, representation. Yeah, I think my, I think what I like seeing over the past couple um, years is. They're, the things that you expect a guy to be, the roles you expect guys to take are being taken by women. Like, I love that there was an IT girl in in Black Panther. Um, and I felt like, oh, you never see girl coders who aren't just either really mean or really this. But, like, she was she was a whole um, spectrum of, of representation. Like, she, she loved shoes, but she also could hack somebody's computer and she could make these really, engineer these really sophisticated um machines and um and equipment um and i it's really cool to see people being comfortable with playing with different variations she would not Um, be out of place on our show which is awesome yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, that's that's something that we focused a lot on in Unstoppable Wasp because you know part of the deal there is that um, you know the main character Nadia is uh, you know the daughter of Hank Pym, uh, Ant Man, and um, you know she is at least as intelligent as he is. She is um, an engineer and and oftentimes sort of that um, general comic book scientist um, category. Um, and you know we wanted to put together a group of in this case, you know, female characters who are who represent sort of a, a spectrum of STEM fields, um, you know, that could actually conceivably be a lab that could make the kind of things that you know superheroes need, um, as compared to, you know, in the case of like Reed Richards, Mister Fantastic has always been like big quotation marks scientist, like he does all that stuff, you know, science, um, you know, they're this group of, of girls, you know, we have a, you know, we have a chemist and we have an engineer and we have, um, you know, a, a variety of different fields represented there too. And um, the really cool thing with that was I, I brought a, uh, or myself and my artist brought an idea to Marvel and we started that book to actually do like interviews with women in science. Um, they would go in the back of every issue and um, they, they let us go with that and, uh, I got to interview a lot of people who are much smarter than me, uh, who are in fields that I previously did not know existed. Like, uh, you know, I, I interviewed a plasma scientist, which um, my like understanding of what her day to day is is still like really vague. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it was real neat being able to put those stories in the back there and do sort of, you know, the opposite of of how those characters, uh, how those people are often portrayed. It's like, oh, you're a scientist, uh, or, you know, oh, they're they're into this kind of stuff, but they're also a scientist. And we sort of took the science first, what do you do? And then it's like, all right, but also, like, what kind of nerdy pop culture stuff are you into? What what stuff did you watch and see growing up that, you know, inspired you to get into what you do now? Um, and that was a lot of fun. We got a lot of, you know, really cool and interesting answers. Uh, a lot of which are the you know the same things that got me into making comics. And just a little fun fact on that, they were the um, there was a survey that was released this past week of of women in STEM, and I think they said fifty seven, fifty eight percent of them said that one of the major characters that got them into comic or into STEM was Dana Scully from the X Files of all characters. So. Uh, it just shows you that representation of a character that's smart and capable in their field it is incredibly important in any kind of representation. Yeah, I, at being in a STEM field myself, like I'm a I'm a computer programmer, and and I posted this on Twitter yesterday, and it's not untrue. I I found that being a computer programmer is the closest thing as I can get to being a wizard in real life <laughs> and making magic. Um, and I've always aspire to be like Hermione Granger and you know be the smartest kid in the class with all the answers and also be able to punch a kid in the face when he's being a dick so um so much of nerddom and having strong positive female roles have inspired at least inspired me to be in a field that is majority men and stand my own so as an aside since you are a huge Hermione fan and since you've seen Cursed Child what were your thoughts on the controversy when they re, uh, cast uh, a, a woman of color as Hermione for the West End version of Harry Potter? So, um, so when I was actually unaware, I didn't look at the casting at all. Um, and actually, what's weird when you look at the program when you go to the show, they're very particular about which names they put beside a character because they don't want to reveal things um, that are supposedly twist in the plot. So I had no idea that um, they had cast um, an African-American, or not African-American, um, but a black actress for Hermione. And when she walked on stage, my first thought was, oh, my God, it's the lady from Doctor Who, because um, she has been in several episodes of uh, Doctor Who as one of the generals for unit. Um, and then my, my next thought was, oh, my God, my Hermione is black, like that whole, my like Obama is my president kind of thing, like, I just lost my mind and thought, this is so cool. Um, and then I knew there was going to be fallout. I mean, there, were, there was fallout when Rue was, was, was black and, or cast as a, as a Mandela. 
in Hunger Games, even though I always pictured her as black because I'm a black female, and the way they described her sounded like me as a kid, so I assumed she was black, and I, um, I thought it would be fine. I've always been under the impression that when you have a play, it really doesn't matter what race the person is. If, if they're the best actress or actor for the job, go for it. Um, sometimes things just don't fit on stage, and you want a great show, regardless of how things look, per se. Um, I actually think J.K. Rowling did it a little bit of injustice by trying to um, trying to backpedal into Hermione could have been black. Like, sure, she had bushy hair that was always frizzing up, and she came back tan from a summer um, from on vacation. But it's okay for Hermione to have been white in the books and black on stage. That's okay. Like, I didn't need that reconciled. I'm just happy that the directors of that play decided that hiring a black woman for that role was the best choice they could make, regardless of what the story had said before. And I didn't need anything else than that. I thought that was great. And anybody that has a problem with that just isn't mature enough to understand the nuances of, of racism. And that's okay. Maybe they'll get it. Maybe they won't. But I'm happy to have watched it and it made me happier to see it. Thank you for sharing that. That's an awesome experience. Uh, JP, Matt, or Colleen, do any of you have any questions for Jeremy? Because I know that you uh, – Jeremy, thank you so much for your input so far. It's been really interesting. Oh, my pleasure. I uh, I don't really have any on the topic. I'm just really excited that that we got like an actual comic author on the show. It it it, it really makes me happy in an unreasonable way. Yeah. For context, Matt is our resident comic. Uh, he, he's he's the comic expert. Uh, in I mean, we all love comics, but Matt is our comic go to. He has been a Marvel collector since he was a kid, uh, so I can only imagine how much he's geeking out right now. Yeah, <laughs> growing up, growing up at my local comic shop, I actually was one of those people who had a standing order to have new issues of certain comics pulled aside. So I would come in uh, every couple weeks and pick up the ones that had come in, and I did that with uh, Silver Surfer, X Factor. X-Force, Gen 13, Spawn, and uh, four or five others. Deadpool, I think. Uh, I didn't start getting really into Deadpool until about until about 98. But yeah, I, I did have him on a standing order. Uh, once Once Deadpool and Friends started, I did, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the, I echo the initial that. run on Deadpool, he's a, he's, a, he's a little less interesting when he first comes around. And I think he gets... More fun as he goes. Yeah, he 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 wasn't. I would say he wasn't as interesting when he started out around uh, New Mutants '89 because he he really wasn't initially meant to be a major character. But once they caught their footing with him, he became a wonderful character. And uh, I also loved the Aurora uh, version of Storm. She's a Actually, my favorite Storm and my favorite relationship in comics, as our listeners may know from our uh, X-Men episode, is uh, Aurora and Logan is my favorite relationship in all of comics. But what about Scott and Jean, though? Oh, God. (laughs) Will they? Won't they? Will they? Won't they? She's... I always felt that she was too... That Jean Grey was too submissive towards Scott in general. Like, like if, if that's your thing for other purposes that we're not going to touch on, that's fine. But I, I, I always felt like she kind of, she wasn't an equal partner in that relationship well, and that bothered me. Like, and it like, does... It, yeah, it does fit into this conversation, though, because... It's that old trope with representing women that Jean Grey couldn't wasn't allowed to be aggressive and strong until she became an all out psychopath as the Dark Phoenix. Like there's no there's no middle ground. And uh, thankfully, that's changing. But the way that it was, you can see where that happened. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that that happened. But I think that I think the the thing that bothers me most about the relationship between Scott and Jane is there was an issue of X-Men, and I wish I could remember which one it was, but I read it when I was, like, 12. So it's been a minute. But there was was an issue where uh, Scott 
told Jean to use her powers to break into someone's apartment to check on them. And she didn't want to do it because that person had just gotten married. And she was concerned that they would be interrupting the uh, consummation of the marriage. And Scott basically belittled her a little bit and just essentially implied that her opinion didn't matter and just opened the damn door. And instead of standing up for herself, she just demurred and did it. And I felt that I felt like that really diminished her status, both in her relationship and as a member of the X-Men. Absolutely. So failing any other questions, I think, what we've actually we've gotten a, about an hour of content, so I think this is a good place to end this part one of what has become a part a two part episode. Uh, Callie, uh, thank you so much for bringing Jeremy on. Jeremy, it has been a real pleasure to hear you talk about this important issue. Anytime you want to come back on Big Nerdy Questions, the door is a wide open, and I promise that we're not always looking at things so seriously. Oh, this is a really important topic. Uh, so please come back on. I know that we're going to be doing the, uh, Mount Rushmore of comics at some point, and we'd love to get your, your input on that. Uh, so thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, I'm really appreciated. It was, it was a great time. And, uh, you know, honestly, I'm much more of a fan of Scott and Emma than Scott and Jean. (laughs) (laughs) I can respect that. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, if you ever wanted somebody who who is assertive and part of a relationship, Emma certainly falls into that uh, that category. That's true. She's she's not quite as frosty. <laughs> I see. What you did see, I I do the horrible puns, Jeremy. That's kind of my thing on the show. Uh, I didn't have a chance much, uh, but uh, so we're gonna go ahead and end up, end this first episode uh, for for two parts, and we'll be back uh, next week with the second part with the rest of our discussions. Uh, so. For all of the panel, I wish you good day.